This is Scott Richman, the director for New York and New Jersey for ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, coming to you from the front lines. ADL is on the front line every day fighting anti-Semitism and hate, and this show brings that to you from ADL's headquarters in New York. If there were ever a front line, it is Israel in the wake of the barbaric atrocities committed by the Hamas terrorist group on October 7th. Since that terrible day, I've heard so much misinformation about the history of the conflict, the players, the geography, and so on. To set the record straight, I reached out to my friend and colleague, ADL Deputy National Director Kenny Jacobson. He has worked for ADL for more than 50 years and lived much of the history that is being discussed. We decided to do a webinar during which I would ask him these basic questions. When more than a thousand people registered within a few days, I knew that this struck a chord. His clear answers and great insight were very well received, and I was determined to give this a broader audience. So I decided to put together a two-part, slightly edited version of the discussion. So let's jump right into part one of the conversation. I speak a lot, and I get so many questions about Israel. I also hear so much misinformation out there. Uh, and really, everybody listening, you are all ambassadors, and I hope that you'll be able to carry these kinds of facts forward and use them and transmit them and put them out on social media and discuss them with your friends, and hopefully this will, will make a difference. I'm especially pleased to be doing this with my friend, Kenny Jacobson, really a treasure among the staff and the volunteer leadership of ADL. His wisdom comes from not only his longevity with the organization, but really his extraordinary command of the facts. Uh, and he has a really clear way of synthesizing them and, and presenting them. So thank you, Kenny, for being on. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure. Always a pleasure to, to work with you. So I look forward to it. Uh, this is about Israel. I know typically we speak about anti-Semitism and a number of the questions that we got in advance were about anti-Semitism, but this particular uh, webinar is focused on Israel. So I want to start with a basic question, which I think we all grapple with uh, as we're focused on the Israel-Hamas war, and that is, what is Hamas? What What is this organization? So Hamas is what we call an Islamist extremist organization. It's an outgrowth of the Muslim Brotherhood, which was really the first organization in the Middle East in the 20th century, uh, developed in Egypt in 1928, to really try to bring the Muslim world back to, if you will, the Middle Ages in terms of Islamic extremism and Islamic law and all the things that we have come to know. Muslim Brotherhood had its ups and downs. It started in Egypt, circulated. But the big transformative moment for the Muslim Brotherhood and for Islamic extreme was the uh, Iranian Re Revolution in 1979, in which for the first time a major country in the region became an Islamist uh, country. And that really set in motion a series of things. And Hamas was one product of the combination of the Muslim Brotherhood on the one hand and the Iranian Revolution. And it was formed in 1988 as an Islamist uh, organization in, in, the, in the territories in Gaza, particularly for the Palestinians. It's a Palestinian Islamic organization. That's the way, simple way to describe it. Okay, so it's formed, but it's formed with a charter. What does the charter say? It's terribly important to understand that because, as we all know, after the terror of October 7th, we had people suggesting that this was only a form of resistance. 
and you know resistance to Israeli occupation. But if anybody knows anything about that charter of Hamas and its basic purpose, uh, one doesn't refer to it either as resistance or even any kind of desire to establish a peace agreement and with Israel. The charter in 1988 had two uh, essential elements. The first was the main purpose of Hamas is to destroy the state of Israel. And it's repeated over and over again in this charter. That's why it exists. The second purpose and related to that is its belief that the Jews, not only Israelis, but that Jews are the big problem in the world. Indeed, they basically at one point, it sounds right out of the protocols of the learned elders of Zion, that the Jews are responsible for every bad thing that's happened in the world since the French Revolution. So you have both elements, but what the point being that they are not a party for peace, they never have been, so the notion that somehow their goal is resistance as opposed to destruction is just false. Who is behind Hamas? Who funds them? Yeah, the main sources are Iran, to start with. Uh, it's important to mention this, though, that Hamas is a Sunni Muslim body. The Palestinians are overwhelmingly Sunni. The Iranians are Shiites, and that's a big split historically going back many, many centuries within the Islamic world between Sunnis and Shiites. So it's not as if they are automatically on the same wavelength, but over the years, Iran has seen Hamas as a very useful tool and has really funded their armaments and a whole bunch of them. There also is funding from Qatar and uh, some uh, other groups. Even there's a non-governmental group in uh, Turkey, for example, uh, that has provided funding. And there's a lot of nebulous funding coming from abroad. But Iran is the number one. We see a lot of conflation of Hamas with the rest of the Palestinian people? How, how representative are they? The, the conventional wisdom, and it, there is a lot of sense to it, is that the Palestinians are not Hamas. In other words, and of course, it's very important uh, as Israel goes in there to try its best to avoid civilian casualties. Uh, but having said that, uh, there is no doubt, and even recent polls are indicating, the, first of all, it was the Palestinians of Gaza who elected Hamas back in 2006. When Israel withdrew from Gaza in 2005, there were elections held, only one time elections held in Gaza. And the Palestinian Authority, which controls the West Bank, got a certain number of votes, but Hamas actually got more of a pluralism and they actually got the majority of the seats. Uh, so in other words, to a significant extent, the people supported Hamas. Now, a year later, Hamas engaged in a violent overthrow of the Palestinian Authority in Gaza and then took complete control and domination to this day. So you could argue that there hasn't been an election since, so it's not so clear whether the Palestinian people actually support Hamas. Though, on the other hand, when you see polls about how they're feeling about what happened on October 7th, the vast majority of Palestinians support it. I see some questions in the chat about how it came to be that Hamas ended up being the dominant party. And you know what I've heard is that they, in addition to their militant activities, they also were supplying welfare, that this was a vehicle for reaching the people. 
And, you know, they ingratiated themselves with the people in Gaza through that, not to mention that they were more organized than others. And, and as you say, got a plurality. So, so that's a characteristic of the Islamic groups. It's true with Hezbollah in Lebanon and elsewhere in the region. Islamic groups are very, very smart. They understand that there's a high level of corruption in most of the societies in the Middle East, and therefore they win public support because of their social welfare and other kinds of activities that, that win people over. Uh, and then, of course, they can begin to impose their extremism. So there's no doubt that Hamas did engage in some of those activities. And the corruption of the Palestinian Authority opened up a tremendous space for Hamas into enter it. So it's not as if it, it's not as if there isn't responsibility here for the corrupt leadership of the Palestinians, which opened it up, but that still doesn't justify what Hamas has done. We're talking about Hamas representing the Palestinians and recognizing that they don't represent all Palestinians. So who else represents the Palestinians? Well, the main body and uh, that signed the Oslo Accords that Israel has been dealing with ever since the 90s is the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority was officially established through the Oslo Accords. Uh, it, it was really the successor to the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization. You know, Arafat signed the uh, Oslo Accords, which was supposed to be the major transformation of Palestinian leadership towards a simple rejection of Israel, which is what the PLO historically had been about, towards hopes, towards peace, and maybe a two-state solution and other, other factors. So the Palestinian Authority became the major thing. But again, they neither brought peace or a two-state solution for the Palestinians. And of course, uh, after Ehud Barak and Bill Clinton offered the Palestinians the opportunity at Camp David in 2001, uh, to, uh, 2000 to establish a, an independent state, and they rejected it. They turned to the major violence, what became known as the Second Intifada. And that really soured many Israelis on the whole peace process. And the point being that aside from, and we can talk about Israeli responsibility for lack of progress, but on the Palestinian side, just when there were hopes that the Palestinian Authority had entered a new era. In fact, they reverted back to the old rejectionism. I want to bring in some other players here, and that one other player is Egypt. So Egypt borders Gaza, uh, yet there's very little talk about Egypt providing humanitarian assistance or allowing Gazans to cross their border. How come the responsibility seems to fall squarely on Israel's shoulders? Well, first of all, part of the history was after the uh, the War of Independence that Israel fought when the Arabs, six Arab states invaded the new state of Israel and Israel survived it and basically won that war. The West Bank was controlled by Jordan and Gaza was controlled by Egypt. But the Egyptians found that experience not exactly to be too positive. And over the time, they more and more wanted to get out of Gaza. And so, first of all, their experience with Gaza has been a very bad one for them. The other element is the last thing this government in Egypt needs is more Islamic extremists coming into their country. You know, after Mubarak was overthrown, and then they had an election, they elected uh, an Islamic leader. 
Uh, and then he only lasted about a year because uh, the, the people in Egypt turned against him. So this government really, for a variety of reasons, all kinds of ex Islamic extremists in the Sinai that Egypt controls. And the truth is, there's a lot more rhetoric in the Arab world for support for the Palestinians and practical uh, steps taken to actually help Palestinians on the ground. So it's a combination of the history of Egypt in, in Gaza, the fact that they resist the potential influx of Islamic extremists, uh, and, uh, and the general kind of hypocrisy of many in the Arab world about not really helping the Palestinians. All that comes together to provide this idea that you would think Egypt would welcome them, but really isn't. We have so many questions coming in, and I, I'm afraid to leave this topic because so many of them are related to this. So I'm going to ask you a couple of them. The first one, this is a point of clarification. Can you explain the difference between Islamic versus Islamist? So Islamic is a general term speaking about mainstream Islam. And it's, you know, Islam is one of the world's great religions with a great history. And the term Islamic usually is used to talk about that mainstream, whether it's Shiite or Sunni, it's also, it's just the broad description of, uh, of the religion of Islam. Islamist is a specific term used to describe uh, the efforts to bring Islam away from the modern world and back to medieval and earlier times. It's sort of the is extremist version. There are many manifestations of it. I mentioned the Muslim Brotherhood, the Iranian Revolution, there are different, uh, ISIS is a manifestation of it. All the Islamic uh, extreme in which they want to take over society, reject modernism, reject the West, unfortunately very often turning to terrorism, and it's really an anti-Western, anti-modern effort to bring back to Islam to some so-called mythical past, which a lot of scholars say never really existed the way they see it. So Islamist, I think, generally speaking, is a term that's, that refers to the very problematic elements of Islam, which, of course, as I said, is one of the world's great religions. Being asked if Hamas still has support in Gaza, given the havoc that they've wrought or what they brought on from the Israeli response? So that's a great question. And the, the truth is, we don't really know the answer to that. Uh, first of all, it's not like people are so free to express their views under uh, Hamas rule. Uh, the second is when you're, when you're being attacked, understandably from our point of view by Israel, uh, there's a natural tendency to not to say, oh, it's, it's Hamas that brought us upon it, even though I think over time that could be the thinking about it, but more to sort of rally round uh, against the Israelis. So I, I, I would say there are elements of just an immediate reaction to Israeli invasion, if you will. And on the other hand, um, there, there still is a lot of sentiment. It has to do with the education system. Kids are educated in a way to, to really hate Israel and to hate Jews. And when you have generations that are taught those things, uh, when Hamas talks about uh, wanting to destroy Israel, and I think the important new element here, and this goes to the question of how this war ends up, the important new element, we focus on the atrocities of October 7th and how it was like the worst day for the Jewish people since the Holocaust. 
But for many in, in the Palestinian world and elsewhere in the Middle East, they focus on what they see as a new vulnerability of Israel. Israel, even if they disliked it, there was tremendous respect for Israel's strength and its military. And now when Hamas talks about wanting to destroy Israel, there's a lot of sense, you know, it may not be so crazy after all, because look how vulnerable it turns out Israel was on October 7th. Now I'm not saying that's necessarily the real world, but there is a perception like that and that can lead, that's why I think a lot of people feel that this is vital that Israel really succeeds in this war because it has to reestablish the idea that you can't simply destroy the Jewish state or else you can never reach peace if that, if that goes on. Last question on Hamas, because I think we really need to move on, but there's so many coming in. News media have asserted that Israel actually provided some kind of support to Hamas in its early years to drive a wedge between it and the Palestinian Authority. How do we respond to those assertions? Well, I think, unfortunately, there's a certain truth to that. Um, and this has to do with internal Israeli politics. Uh, the right-wing governments of Israel, and particularly, of course, we're all aware that there were major divisions before October 7th within Israel about the judicial reform and all that. The right-wing governments basically take the position that the Palestinian Authority is no different than Hamas. And indeed, they have almost an incentive to paint the Palestinian Authority even as worse because they fear that the Palestinian Authority might be willing to uh, negotiate eventually a two-state solution, which many on the right are not for. And so therefore they saw Hamas as a lever against the Palestinian Authority and to weaken the effort by others in Israel to say, let's try to negotiate with the Palestinian Authority. So, and by the way, we can talk about Hezbollah. There were similar things that Israel did with regard to Hezbollah in Lebanon. But so, so the answer is, to some extent, they did things that did help Hamas as a way to weaken the Palestinian Authority. And of course, Israel has paid a terrible price for some of that by what happened. You mentioned Hezbollah, so let's move north to Lebanon, uh, where Hezbollah is the, the predominant group. Talk to us about how aligned Hezbollah and Hamas are. First of all, Hezbollah is a Shiite group. Hamas is Sunni. And the connection between Iran and Hamas wasn't so self-evident for many years. The truth is, until a few years ago, there wasn't a lot of talk about Iran and Hamas because the point was made that Iran is Shiite and Hamas is Sunni, and so they're not natural allies. And over time, they, they became closer and closer and more and more Hamas was dependent. On the other hand, Hezbollah is purely a product of Iran. Uh, Hezbollah wouldn't exist without Iran. It is a surrog simple surrogate of Iran. Now there too, the, the way Hezbollah came into being, and there too there's room for blame for Israel trying to be too smart. In the war in Lebanon, which took place in 1982, the group in Lebanon that was sort of underrepresented was, were the Shiites, mostly in the south of Lebanon. And they had a fairly moderate group called Amal, they weren't lovers of Israel, don't get me wrong, but they were more of a mainstream group. But Israel didn't sort of do much to encourage that. 
and uh, a more extremist group started with Iran's influence to emerge in southern Lebanon called Hezbollah, which over the years grew tremendously and took over. It, it doesn't officially have power in Lebanon, but it's become the major force, including a hu huge, huge military force that Hamas, uh, if you would have asked me a year ago, I would have sort of played down Hamas as a military force, especially compared to Hezbollah, which has, according to most Israelis, at least 100,000 more sophisticated rockets ready to target Israeli cities. Uh, so Hezbollah became uh, the main tool of Iran uh, to use against Israel. And of course, there's the major war that took place in 2006 between Hezbollah and Israel which by the way, many Israeli leaders thought was a failure by Israel. I never took that position and the proof is in the pudding. Despite the fact there were many mistakes made by Israel in that war, the fact is it created a deterrent effect that has lasted until now. From 2006 up until 2023, when October 7th, there'd been very little activity by Hezbollah against Israel and I think Israel, in my view, did create deterrence in that war, but that doesn't mean that Hezbollah now might not uh, emerge. And of course, again, as much as Hamas has proved that it could do devastating things, the Israelis strategically uh, have historically worried much more about Hezbollah than Hamas. I said we were going to move away from Hamas, but there's an interesting question in the chat that I'm curious what you would say to, which is, what do you think was Hamas's goal? in the attack, given that it had to know that Israel would retaliate in the manner that it did? Let me sort of step back a bit, because I think it always relates to what had been happening in the region over the last few years. First, the Abraham Accords, and then the, all the talk about Saudi Arabia normalizing relations with Israel. Outside of Israel, there seemed to be a contradiction, which is the Arabs were making normalization and peace with the Jewish state, and meanwhile, forces hostile to Israel around the world take Amnesty International, which, which for years was biased against Israel. But the last two or three years, they rejected Israel's fundamental right to exist. They elevated it to a new level. And I argued that all these anti-Israel forces were in a panic over the normalization process. How do you justify delegitimizing the Jewish state when the Arabs themselves are normalizing relations? And I think this relates to what Hamas did on October 7th. They were in a panic over the fact that if Saudi Arabia had added on to the Abraham Accords, the whole idea of delegitimizing the Jewish state, which as I said, was all, what Hamas was all about, would go out the window. There would be no real chance of eliminating the Jewish state. So they had to do something to turn that history back. And by the way, it's not so clear that they weren't that they will not be successful. We will have to see whether the Abraham Accords and what the Saudis will do going forward. But I think that was the main motivation of Hamas. They saw the losing out in the region and they had to do something and they did something, unfortunately, that was devastating and major. You bring up delegitimization, the, the right of, uh, of Israel to exist. I, I wanna begin to move towards a conversation about that. And the first question I'm going to ask is about the Palestinians. Where do the Palestinians live? Where did they live prior to the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948? And where did they end up 
post-1948? So there's a lot of controversy over the history of the Palestine. You know, Golda Meir once had a, what turned out to be a very inappropriate comment that she once made that there was no thing, such thing as the Palestinians, which was not an appropriate comment uh, because a, a people's identity can take many, many forms. Obviously, Jewish identity goes back thousands of years and we can trace it through archeology span and everything else about the Jewish connection. And so the question was, how connected were these people to the land and, and all that, you know, very often in literature in the Arab world, what we call now Israel or Palestine was often referred to as Lower Syria. There wasn't a strong identification, but the fact is that the Palestinian national identity really surged with the arrival of the Zionists. It was almost partly, not completely, I don't want to suggest completely it has its own independence, but partly in reaction to the Zionists. And so they have a right to call themselves a people, and they are a people. And so, first of all, I think we have to be clear that Palestinian national identity is a legitimate and historical thing that we have to recognize. Now, most of the Palestinians before 48 uh, lived in, in the areas that are part of Israel or part of Gaza or the West Bank. But there also are studies which showed that Arabs from elsewhere in the Middle East moved to the area that became Israel during all the years pre prior to the independence of Israel because the Zionists were building a pretty constructive and, and successful area even before there was a state. So I would say most of the Palestinians are indigenous, others are, are there, but they live there. And then, of course, the war took place in 1948, in which the Arab states invaded Israel. So, what happened to the Palestinians? Where did they go so in 48? They refer to it as a great disaster. And of course, there would have been no disaster had they agreed to the two-state solution that the UN offered. The UN partition plan of 1947 provided for an Arab-Palestinian state and a Jewish-Israeli state with Jerusalem as an international city. The Arab world and, and the Palestinians rejected it and invaded Israel as an effort to prevent the Jewish state from ever emerging. So first of all, there would have been no refugee problem had there have been an acceptance and the whole history of the region could have been very different. Then the question is, what happened to all the Palestinians? First of all, a certain smaller numbers stayed in Israel, they became what we refer to as Israeli Arabs, or they refer to as Palestinian Israeli Arabs who still live there, make up about 20% of the Israeli pop. The others uh, fled, and they didn't flee mostly very far. They either fled across the Jordan River into Jordan or into the West Bank that was controlled by Jordan or into Southern Lebanon, and, and most of them fled into areas. Why did they flee? Most historians think that about 10% were rejected by Israelis. About 10% probably fled because there were announcements in the Arab world, leave and we'll destroy the Jews and then you can come back. And then the vast majority fled because that's what happens in warfare. There was a war going on and people fled, but they weren't even fleeing that far. I mean, the distances we're talking here were fairly minimal. Uh, that going to the West Bank was right across the way, you know, going into southern Lebanon was not exactly a major thing. So that was the first time. And then, of course, the Six-Day War added to that because 
when the war broke out, Israel ended up taking control of the West Bank, where a lot of, many Palestinians already had moved to, and then many of them moved on into Jordan. That's why Jordan has just about a majority Palestinian population because of so many of the refugees fled. So they're dispersed, but the commonality is that generally speaking, they haven't been given any rights. And let's, I'll add one more point. One of the really disturbing elements of all this is you hear in Gaza that there's a refugee camp, or you hear in Southern Lebanon, there's a refugee camp on the West Bank. And the obvious question is, what do you need a refugee camp when you're in control of your situation? And can, I think the whole point of it is to keep alive the issue against Israel. At the same time that Palestinians were on the move, Jews were on the move. Talk to us a little bit about where Jews were expelled from in 1948. I think it's important historically to understand that Jews have been living in the Middle East uh, for millennia. Uh, not only, first, of course, in the land of Israel, which is the basic formative period of the Jewish people and the connection to the land of Israel. But then uh, for centuries, they lived in Egypt, in Algeria, in Morocco, in Iraq, or in Iran, all over the region. And there's always a lot of historiography about how Jews fared under Islam. There is no doubt that Jews fared better under Islam than they did under Christianity during many of those centuries. It was hardly an ideal situation. There was discrimination and limits, but it didn't reach the level of anti-Semitism that one saw in Christian Europe, say in the Middle Ages and beyond. Um, but then was the movement for, of Zionism and the, then the founding of state, that just changed everything. And there were about 800,000 Jews living in Arab lands who between 1948 and into the 50s ended up leaving their countries mostly forcibly. And fortunately, they had a place to go to that was eager to take them in, which was the land of Israel. And that sort of is one of the stark differences that the refugee problem of the Jews from Arab lands ended up not no longer being a refugee problem because Israel welcomed them, whereas the refugee problem of the Palestinians was sustained for political purposes. So we have Palestinians living in all of these different places, each with different facets to, to their life, different issues, Gaza being one of them. Talk to us about the Israeli Arabs, essentially the Palestinians who are, are living in Israel proper. What's their life like as Israeli citizens? So I have to do first a little transparency. I've been sitting representing ADL on, to, on an interagency task force for the last 20 years, an interagency group working for equality for Israeli Arabs. And I actually wrote the main piece for the Jewish community those 20 years ago about why it was so important for American Jews to take seriously the issue of improving life and equality for Israeli Arabs. So I, I've always believed in the issue was a very important one. And uh, there have been issues over the, over the years, some of it very complicated because of identity issues and the war issues. But I would say everything considered, uh, things have improved, even under the right-wing government. The Netanyahu government in recent years has expended huge amounts of money to improve education and employment opportunities for Israeli Arabs, which I think is a very smart thing to do because they're one-fifth of the population, number one. 
and because they could have a lot to contribute to Israeli society. You, know, you always have the people who question the so-called loyalty, but uh, I would say when you, everything considered in the difficult position that Israeli Arabs are because they identify as Palestinians, uh, overall, I think uh, the situation could be a lot worse, and including during the current crisis. I think we need to think about the fact that we're talking about a minority that's approximately 20%, as yeah. you said. We, as Jews in this country, we are 2% of the population. This is a, a minority that is 10 times the size of the Jews in this country. So sort of focusing on this idea of the presence of Palestinians in Israeli society, the places where they work, where they go to school, where they live, uh, maybe give us a, a broader sense of what, what their life is like. Well, look, they're under a lot of pressures because, you know, the, from elsewhere in the Arab world, from particularly the Palestinians outside, there's always a lot of pressure on them to stand up for the Palestinian cause and to not show loyalty to Israel. But I think, I think the overriding issue is that there's a recognition by most Israeli Arabs that life under Israel, with all of its challenges, and there definitely is discrimination and inequalities, but that everything considered, they have a lot invested in Israeli society. You go to many hospitals, many of the doctors and uh, 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 Arabs, Israeli Arabs, they have a, a role to play in Israeli society. And I think the, the strongest thing Israel has gone for it is the recognition of Israel as a successful society compared to many of the dictatorships elsewhere in the region. But that doesn't excuse Israel from the need to address some of these problems. And as I said, it, it's ironic that, because uh, Netanyahu, for example, has used during election campaigns, has used a kind of demagogic language sometimes about Israeli Arabs, which we have criticized and things which obviously don't help in the understanding of their role. But on the other hand, as I said, they've also expended huge amounts of funds in order to improve the lives. So it's a complicated issue. It remains complicated as long as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict remains, and uh, it will be. But I, I actually think that in many ways uh, it has, it, I wouldn't call it a success story. That's a little too much, but it, as I said, it could have been a lot worse. And how do they view this war? It wasn't that kind of open support generally for the terrorism because they understand that that's... Uh, that would put them in a bad position. But on the other hand, they have a lot of sympathy for their Palestinian brethren. And so I have not heard that much from the Israeli Arab community during this time. Uh, and I surely haven't seen the kind of outrageous reactions that we've seen elsewhere coming from. And I think they realize that the Israeli people that had been so divided uh, prior to this because of the judicial reform had rallied round like never before because of the of the barbarism. And this was not a time to appear to be dis, disloyal or whatever you want to call it of Israel. What about the other communities, the West Bank, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria? Where are they on this war? This is the classic case of vulnerability, as I mentioned earlier, of Israel. And I think there's a certain delight in all of those places that Israel was shown not to be the military and intelligence superpower that they had assumed and thought of. So there's some kind of glee about it. Um, 
On the other hand, though, the Palestinian Authority and the people who support know very well that Hamas is their enemy. You know, they were they were the ones who violently took over Gaza by attacking Palestinian Authority. So I think there's a a concern about Hamas being a threat to them, not only in Gaza, but in the West Bank. And so there's an ambivalence there, even though I think there's a certain glee about watching the Jews suffer the way they do. Do we think that this war may expand to other fronts? Obviously, we all hope it doesn't do it. And I come back to Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, a few years ago when he made this incredible statement saying, what a big mistake we made in 2006 when we challenged the Israelis and ended up watching uh, so much destruction take place. So he has to worry about his place and uh, Hezbollah's place within Lebanon. And they know full well that if, in fact, they go from beyond, I mean, they've already caused, look, the northern uh, communities in Israel are evacuated. So it's not like there isn't something going on already. But there also is a recognition that this could turn into a full-scale war. And the Israelis are trying to make that point very clear to Nasrallah. Don't do it, because what you saw in 2006 will be nothing compared to what will happen if you do it. So I think that's the deterrent effect. But whether ultimately Iran will not want to use it in a way is hard to predict. So I'm not ready to make predictions. Obviously, we can all hope that it doesn't expand into a water war. This ends part one of a very special podcast version of the discussion I had with ADL Deputy National Director Kenny Jacobson, during which we discussed many facets of the Israel-Hamas war, the history, the players, the geography, and much more. Stay tuned for part two of this very important conversation. In the meantime, if you found this to be interesting and helpful, please share it widely to your networks via email or social media. And as always, a big thank you to you, the listeners, who tuned into this From the Frontlines podcast. If you are not already a subscriber, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or on Spotify to ensure that you do not miss a show. Just search for From the Frontlines. And please engage in these important conversations throughout the week by following me on X, Threads, and Instagram. My X handle is at Scott A. Richmond. My Instagram and Threads handle is at Scott underscore ADL. And our hashtag is fighting hate for good. 